things are beginning to work out. By George, I felt that after all this time, things, you know, I, I mean, just the way it is, you figured that couldn't happen. But do you know, at this point now, uh, gee, just, I can't believe it, but at this point, well, I, I feel compelled to report to you that it is now possible. Ed, are you ready in there with the thing in there? Watch it now. I've got my hand up. I'm ready to point. Things have progressed to such a point. We have been struggling up this crummy, rotten pyramid of existence for, oh, well, how many? Uh, are there any of you out there who know specifically how long man has been on Earth? Any of you know how long what the latest uh, estimate is among anthropologists, paleontologists, ecologists, ichthyologists, ornithologists, huh? It's roughly two and a half million years, a long time. But actually, it isn't so long when you stop. But looking back over, it, it doesn't seem much more than just a few, you know. It's amazing how time passes, you know. One minute you're a tadpole, the next minute you're Ed Sullivan. <laughs> it's a long trip up the hill. Well, well, anyway, after all this time, after all this rotten time building pyramids, I mean, you know, being a barbarian, working your way through the Ural Mountains, being a, you know, a guy with a bare rug, hanging on you there and a hat with horns on it and all that stuff. Till, till finally we have arrived to this point now where we walk up and down the street, we stand up straight, we have tall, thin, high foreheads and, and uh, bad teeth and all that, you know. We, we've come to the point now where we're really... At long last, it is now... That one. It is now possible for you to obtain in a squirt-top bottle with a can, you know, that squirts, you can now obtain a product called... I'll set now. <laughs> Compassion. <laughs> and, 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 and not only that, it advertises itself. It says, stop the panic of pain in seconds. Spray it with... <laughs> oh, compassion. And the can reads, nothing stops pain like a touch of compassion. Untraditionally guaranteed to stop the pain of all kinds of injuries, external or otherwise. Or your money back. party of people who are just sitting around opening the new flip-top beer cans. <laughs> As you know, it's much more fun to open beer cans now than to investigate the interior. <laughs> oh, that's better. Yeah, they kind of ran out of gas there, didn't they, that crowd? They're now on down the way there, picking up another six-pack plastic. Now, now I suspect that now since we can buy a spray can that contains compassion that is advertised as nothing stops pain like a touch of compassion, the next step, of course, is love, uh, which will be obtainable uh, both in the frozen and the powdered forms. I'm sure that also it will be obtained in the aerosol bomb. And I kind of like the tie-in of bomb and love there. 
and compassion and bomb. It comes with a bomb. It's one of these aerosol bomb cans, compassion. I, I, I think we're moving in the right direction. You can also buy a cereal, you know, called Life. Oh, yes, it, uh, it's high in protein, low in uh, carbohydrates, and rich in the necessary vitamins. And the advertisement says, nothing really is like a breakfast with a bowl of life and a few strawberries on the side. And uh, get you started off in the morning there with a little life. I'm sure that the next thing will be a high protein, low carbohydrate health drink called <laughs> Existence. <laughs> to sip deeply of the things that are. Uh, uh, to look carefully at that which is. That's with uh, italics. Uh, <laughs> uh, did you hear? Uh, hello there, for hello, hello, hello. Did you hear that the other day that Kennedy had to take his yacht out far out to sea, Ed? to fly a kite on it. He couldn't find any place where it was legal to fly a kite. And so Kennedy is hanging on the fantail of the family yacht there. Hello, hello there, hello. He's hanging on the fantail of the family yacht there, flying a three-stick crossbow kite. Just a little touch of compassion comes in the squirt bottle there. Guaranteed to cure all pains or money back. Nothing cures or heals those little aches and minor irritations and abrasions. Like a little touch of... <laughs> yeah, I know that crowd, too. That's a rotten story they're laughing at. Hey, cut it out there. Those of you who would like to hear the story they're laughing at, send your name and address in plain seal wrapper to Deep Inner Secret or the Golden Key of Happiness, W-O-R am at fm new york in care of john gambling he'll answer you right after the 735 newscast and that bop he has every morning with what is his name peter roberts <laughs> yeah, one of our more creative laughers well while we're on the uh we're here you know you might as well understand that it is true did you see the little news note in the paper about kennedy having to go on the fantail of his yacht to fly a kite had to go far out to sea to do it well, of course, a lot of us have been flying kites in one way or another, illegally, mentally, for probably a thousand years or more now. Uh, I, I, what kind of kite are you flying mentally? Is it a box kite? It's a pretty square kite. Or uh, is, it, is it one of those little triangular kites that needs a, 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 lot of, uh, a lot of weight on the back end there, a lot of ballast to keep it floating? And from time to time, it goes into one of those wild spins and winds up in the telephone wires of existence, lost forever. <laughs> or is it one of those? Or was it one of those seventeen-color fish kites? You know, with the big, with the big uh, fins on it and the tail that flops in the wind. You know, the kind that the Japanese have. Is that the kind of kite you're flying mentally in your poor little sad, twisted mind existence there? Or on the other hand, you know, you know uh, that one of the great uh, sports in the Orient in flying kites is the sport of. Uh, of battling kites, you know, having one kite fight another, where the two kites that get maybe two or three hundred feet up in the air there, and one kite has a has a string, you know, they have the string that's that's covered with uh, little glass particles, you know, they dip them in, the, in glue and stuff, and the other kite has the same thing, and the two kites move back and forth. One kite looks like a fish, and the other kite looks like a dragon, and the third kite looks like a plain old box, 
and they battle back and forth. Well, this is the story of all of mankind, you know, these, these kites fighting back and forth. There's the old box kite, Barry Goldwatersville, and then on the far, on, oh yeah, so this is as square as you can get. And way on the far right, yeah, on the far other end, you know, you have, you have kites that have little wings and fluttering things that, that are the totally romantic kites, and then you have the dragon kites, and who is to know, uh, all right, there you go, who is to know which kite has even, there, 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 there it is, a little blue thing there. Who is to know which kite has at least even the modicum of that wonderful new spray ingredient, which uh, comes out of the can and is guaranteed to cure all the pains and aches that Salinger has dug out of the radish garden of existence. Compassion, of course. You can get it at Walgreens in case you're interested in compassion. 59 cents for the small can, a dollar nine cents for the big family size or hospital size can of compassion. <laughs> Hi, George. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, this is Chucky reporting with wonderful gift suggestions. We've come all the way out from the island and I brought Dickie with me and we've We'd like to report on gift suggestions for here, there, and everywhere as part of WOR's great vast program of public service. Uh, I think this is a darning little idea for those of you particularly who are reverent. A little idea which comes from the Better Homes and Gardens uh, uh, collection of gifts for summer giving, entitled Let Us Pray, reflects this pretty table trio, little girls wonderfully made out of the finest ceramics inspirational salt and pepper ladies and matching larger size napkin holder each one on his little darling apron invokes a reverent mealtime prayer as they serve you soft pink glazed ceramic salt and pepper yes let us pray another wonderful gift suggestion coming to you from the WOR special service department Gift for reverent people. <laughs> hold it there, hold it, hold it. Hi, George. Uh, I just wanted to announce that me and Dickie are opening up a special, a special branch office in uh, Bar Harbor. I, ca I can't leave New York at this time of the year. By God, Dickie, if anyone's going up there on the Cape and all the way up to Massachusetts, it's going to be you. I just can't leave the island. <laughs> hold it there. Hold it. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's Friday night. Uh, speaking of various sicknesses, this is WOR AM and FM New Yorkie, and uh, we'll be here until, uh, I guess, the time for the important things to come on. All those serious people, they'll be here with Long John and, uh, <laughs> and George. We have with us here the Mandarin House people, and uh, if you're planning to make the New York scene over the weekend, you're itchy, and uh, you know how it is. And and I'll tell you, if, if you have a lot of people that you don't want to talk to when you eat with, if you would like to escape your family for a while, I would like to suggest the Mandarin House, because you can tell them that secretly for years you've been a Zen diner, and at long last you would like to contemplate the ethereal sadness, the eternal gladness of a leaf of lettuce. I would suggest you try it at the Mandarin House, which is a superb oriental restaurant on 13th Street between 6th and 7th in the village. No, seriously, friends, if you've been wanting to escape your family for a good two and a half hours, go to the Mandarin House and contemplate the navel of your sea bass. It's 
great restaurant. What's the matter, Lee? You're looking so serious. It's all right. I'm watching the time. Don't you worry about me. Ted is on vacation. Uh, so if you really, uh, seriously, friends, if you want to try a restaurant that goes beyond restauranting, beyond and above the call of ordinary restaurant duty, I would like to suggest the Mandarin House. And if you've never tried Mandarin food, be prepared. This is not frozen egg rollsville. Uh, they have a bar. It is Mandarin Oriental food. It's on 13th Street between 6th and 7th in the heart of the village, and they're open on the weekend. And it is way off the tourist beaten track. Way off, believe me. Uh, the food is great, and you better call before you go down there to make a reservation. Okay, they're open at noon, and they're open till about 1 o'clock in the morning, or thereabouts. Now, let's see. We also have the paper book gallery, which is in the village on 6th Avenue. In a sense, in many ways, as a microcosm of what is, the paper book gallery is the village. Wouldn't you say in a rough way there? Very much so. It, 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 believe me, in 20 minutes, if you stand back in the Kierkegaard section of the paper book gallery, you can see all the ills and all the gladnesses that are besetting mankind today. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's on 6th Avenue, just Neck, well, just off A Street, next to the Howard Johnson. Oh, by the way, among other things, they uh, carry a large collection of back issues of the Realist magazine, including the terrible one, which I tried to burn all the copies of, uh, and uh, it was of no avail, the one in which Paul Krasner impolitely interviewed me. It was a rotten interview, terrible. One of the worst pictures I ever saw in my life of me on there. But uh, they have back copies, and you will find the Paper Book Gallery is a genuine place if you are coming into New York to get a little taste of New York life that you will never find anywhere else. Believe me, you just have to accept it on faith. It is true. Uh, you will never find this in, uh, in Shemokin. Believe me, it's just not that way in Allentown, PA. It's the Paper Book Gallery on 6th Avenue, and they're open on the weekend. A superb collection of paper books and great people. They're at 399.6, just off 8th Street in the village. Okay? What's this opera promo? What do, we, oh, oh, what do we have for the opera here now? One more thing. We have uh, an opera tomorrow at 2 o'clock on WOR. And uh, the opera this week is Louise, a little-known opera, tomorrow at 2. All right? Now, let's see. What else? We've dealt with compassion. Oh, yes. I must, uh, yes, 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 we looked at that, looked at that. All right, now, let's go into it. Now, since last night, inadvertently, I shouldn't have done it, inadvertently, I, uh, I implied that I knew a story about cantaloupe fields. I will now tell you... <laughs> Uh, this is by way of a disclaimer. The, the views which will now be represented do not necessarily represent those of the station management, nor do they represent those of the AMA or Carlton Fredericks. They might possibly represent the views of Martha Dean. They certainly do not represent the views of Alfred and Dora, uh, you know who. They uh, represent Ed Fitzgerald, but not Peggy. There's a split there. <laughs> But uh, they, they do represent the views of me at that one point. Uh, I, how many of you have ever been, 
and uh, this is something that comes up at a time of hot weather, like the, you know, the kind we're having now. This is real hot weather, genuine hot weather. Uh, how many of you have ever been in a cantaloupe field? Well, I'm going to now describe to you something which, if you're a little old lady from Staten Island and are thoroughly attuned to uh, the weather, the news, the time, and John Gamblin, you'd better leave for about ten minutes. It'll be much better. Uh, all right, now we'll start this out. I, I guess I must have been about, oh, I'd say about 15. See, I'm a kid. You got it now? And kids are very much more involved in the actual earth that we live in and on and are part of than adults. Adults have a, have a great ability to forget the earth. Uh... Once in a while, and, and uh, as, as the, honey, I've done the opera promo, just take the whole thing down. You aren't listening. I don't know where you've been for the last 20 minutes, but it hasn't been here. But uh, never, I know that. You run back and forth. But as a matter of fact, I think one of the things that has to do with, with uh, the so-called maturation process of 20th century man is that the farther away you can get from the object of nature, objet au naturel, which you are, the further away you can get from that, the more you are considered a sophisticated, civilized, mature human being. It's an interesting concept. Uh, there have been other views. For example, the uh, transcendentalists held quite the opposite view. Uh, Thoreau, for example, is a good example of that. Thoreau felt that the closer you got to be part of nature, the more you involved yourself from the world that is as opposed to the world that you dream of the more you will be in tune with yourself and the existence that has been given to you. Now, we hold the opposite view. In fact, did you see, an, uh, there was an ad in Time magazine uh, in the current issue of Time. That had, it was a four-page ad. And the ad had a picture and of a printed circuit. And the printed circuit said, uh, this is a planning board. A planning board. Is a printed circuit. It said, this is a part, a component from the first fully automated rolling mill in the steel world. And I went on to say that this planning board not only can, can uh, beautifully roll steel, it can take a, a giant ingot and in four minutes reduce it to a, a strip of steel 3,200 feet long and a sixteenth of an inch thick, but it can look forward to difficulties which are unforeseen. Figure that one for a minute. It can, it, can, it can deal with unforeseen. In short, it is a total planning printed circuit. Well, now, that's considered a great thing. Everybody applauded at the end of the ad. Except where does that leave us? Us. U.S. Us. Are you a printed circuit? Is there anybody out there? Is there anyone out there who is a human cathode follower? <laughs> I suppose there won't be camp followers a hundred years from now. There will be cathode followers, Eddie. Uh, <laughs> he's thinking that one over. Is there anyone out there who has replaced intuition with negative feedback? Out there, anybody out there? You know what negative feedback is? Uh, have any of you replaced, uh, have replaced the process? I wonder if a machine can worry. The first machine that worries will be the first machine that will start a war, I would like to uh, suggest. Uh, have you replaced worry with fringe regeneration? Have you replaced worry with a perfect sine wave? 
or do you conceive of life as a sine wave that has no transient or uh, unwanted uh, momentary parasitic oscillations? These are all phrases which I'm sure you know a great deal about. But these are phrases which are going to replace you, Dad, quickly, in a hurry. Well, anyway, uh, <laughs> so, so I, I, I'm wondering whether or not, you know, it's, it's a difficult question, really, now that you look at it, since we're sitting all around here scratching on a Friday night, and 87,000 guys are, are trying to get a person from the front seat of the Mercury into the back seat uh, out there in Jersey uh, in the drive-in. It's a, it's a difficult question to comprehend at this point, whether or not being a part of nature represent, represents uh, civilization or being removed from nature represents it. Well, there's two opposing views. And unfortunately, the latter view is now in the ascendant. The uh, earlier view is not. Uh, there was, there was a, you know, there's another ad in this week's time. I would suggest you look it up. There's a lot of wild things in the ads, much greater than you see in the, uh, much more significant that you will, uh, than you will ever see in the editorial columns. One ad showed a plane, just a plane. And there was this plane, a plane. When I mean plane, it's P-L-A-I-N, you know, like the Great Plains. It showed a great stretch of country. Now, it was a good line drawing, and you could see off to the left a, a, uh, a drive, a, a, an enormous superhighway crossing it, and above the superhighway was a jet plane going across the plane. And the copy said, Gertrude Stein said, and we quote very widely paraphrased here, it said, Gertrude Stein said, America is a place where there is more space where nobody is than there are spaces where people are. So, uh... Uh, and they went on to say with a great deal of lip-smacking, and it's wonderful. Well, that was in the old days, and thank God it's not that way anymore. Now, with the advent of the great superhighways and the jet planes, there are no places where nobody is. There is no places where everybody isn't rubbing cheek by jowl, and there is a gigantic sign that said instant seat covers, 30 seconds wait only. Uh, so I don't know whether or not we're moving forward or backward. Who knows whether we're just flopping around. Now, anyway, I'm this kid. Now we're getting into the story. You all set? I'm a kid. And I'm working as a surveyor. I'm working with a surveyor. Uh, I don't think there is any job, very few jobs today, that come even remotely close to the work of the civil engineer for being an educated man who yet is somehow connected with the earth, the thing that we're living on. And at the same time, he's connected with abstractions. You follow that? He is a transition. You know, a civil engineer is an engineer you don't hear much about. He's the guy that lays the highway through the North Woods. Now, he's at one point destroying the North Woods, and at the other point, uh, somehow in his own mind, he's connected with it. I was coming down through the interior of the state of Maine here a couple of days ago. And I was, uh, let's see, where was it exactly? It was between... Waterville, Maine, which is in central Maine, uh, sort of, yeah, it's central Maine. It's just a little north of Augusta. It was Waterville, Maine, and the Canadian border, which would be on the left end of Maine, the left side of Maine, as you look at it. If you were to take a diagonal line between Waterville and go up to the Canadian border, it would be a, like a 30-degree angle angling up north, uh, cutting through Rangeley, the Rangeley Lakes area. 
Well, I'm about halfway up through that area, and I'm in an in a, in a almost totally uninhabited section of the world. There's nothing there except huge spruce forests, tremendous forests, and the smell of evergreen trees, and once in a while the smell of a lake or the smell of a river, and the kind of air which you could not believe even exists in this, in this climate, in this world. Magnificent country. Well, I came up over a hill on this little two-lane road, which is not the kind of roads we have, but a little rotten two-lane road, and I came up, shoom, over the hill. I'm, I'm cutting down, and I see up on the next hill, I see about five guys, and they have a transit set up in the middle of this gigantic wilderness, and they are cutting a road off in a kind of easterly, northerly direction. They're going off into the woods, and they have a little bulldozer, and they've cut down a few of the trees, and they are cutting into the wilderness. Well, I slowed up, and I looked off at these guys, and they're standing there in the sand. It's very sandy soil up there. They've cut the top soil off, and it's sand, and the sun is beating down. Temperature's about 80 degrees, which is very hot for Maine. The uh, air is clear as crystal, and you can hear the wind blowing through the, the, the spruce trees. And these guys are just laying out a line. They're laying out a plumb line. Well, I drove past these characters, and I drove up a little bit, up and down a hill, and past another shack, and I'm, I'm thinking about this. Yeah. And maybe that's why this surveyor job has such a great, had such a great impact on me as a kid. It's, in a sense, building civilization in the wilderness. So you have the best of two possible worlds. We cannot escape being civilized people. At the same time, we can't escape being part of nature, you know? So anyway, I'm a kid, and I have gotten this job, and I'm working with this surveyor. The temperature at the time that, that this story takes place must have been 125 degrees. I, I, must, I must tell you that, that the flat area of Indiana, with the sun hanging about 20 feet off of the horizon, with, uh, with the lake laying out there somewhere off in the, in the northern horizon the lake is laying out there uh, the water is now warmed up it's it's july the water is is remotely approaching 80 degrees it's hot uh, you can smell the fish a hundred miles inland the mosquitoes are rising up out of the ground and we are working along a flat river which was a tributary of the wabash now indiana rivers ed have you ever seen an indiana river well, let me explain something to you for a minute. If, if, if Walt can leave you alone for a couple of seconds, let me explain to you that the Indiana River is different from the Eastern River. For one thing, it hardly moves. It's like an artery that has stopped beating. There is no pulse. There is no current. You can't tell what direction an Indiana River is moving in. It's just like a long, thin ribbon of stagnant, dark green, coffee-colored water just laying there. And the banks are very indefinable because they kind of slowly meld into the horizon. They just sort of move up into a, a long, thin line of cattails and uh, kind of a, a kind of river grass and a sort of marshy, loamy, sandy, smelly soil where millions of crawdads have lived and died for a thousand years before. And these rivers just lay there. Well, our job was to march along this river. There were four of us. 
we were to march along this river, myself, two other kids, and this surveyor. Now the kids were of different ages. One was about 18, he was the older one who was going to college, and there were the two of us who were just real kids, like 15 and 16, and there was the surveyor himself. And we were moving along this, this, this strange, tenuous jungle life. It was as close to Nigeria as I know any part of the country in America can be like. It was really like Nigeria, because the river itself was a, was a low, flat, mud stream filled from one bank to the other with catfish. And as we worked, you could see the, the, the catfish rolling in the sun. Do you know about a basking fish? They don't have any of these things here in the east. Well, a basking fish is a fish that lays on the top of the water and literally basks in the sun. Now, many of the Midwestern rivers are, are, uh, are cursed by a scourge of basking fish, of, for example, the gar variety. And as we're working, we can see these gar fish, six, seven feet long, gigantic gars, just laying out there in this four feet of water. Uh, really, it's four feet of silt, of mud and glop, lily pads, bullheads and frogs and cattails. And these garfish are laying in the sun, with the sun beating down on their backs. And it's a strange thing to see a fish laying in the water like a log, with the back of him totally dry. You can see it shining in the sun. He's just laying out there. You can, you can, you can wade right up to him if he's hot enough if he's been laying there enough. You can wade right up to him, you can reach out and you can poke him with a stick and then he'll slowly, he sort of flips his flippers and he moves. You know, there is no natural enemy of the garfish. The garfish is, well, now, if you've never seen a garfish, look it up in your, in your dictionary, G-A-R. The garfish looks like a swordfish. He has a long, narrow bill and a long beak and the garfish will eat duckling. Yes, he will eat uh, anything that moves in the water. He's a, he's, a, uh, he's a terrible, rapacious fish. And for that reason, most of the Midwestern states give you bounties on them. If you kill a garfish, you bring in the bill, and you get 50 cents or a dollar, whatever, whatever the bounty happens to be. But as we were working through this jungle, and there weren't, uh, oh, every two or three miles, there would be a tiny farmhouse. This is the country of the truck farm. Now, the truck farm is the kind of farm, and, and almost all of the truck farmers in this area in northern Indiana were, 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 were Swedish and Dutch. Hardly any of them even spoke English. And so, for mile after mile, we're working along this river, and we are laying a line which ostensibly was to make this river 50 feet wider. And so, we were laying a line that was, fifth, that was measured from the center line of the river out to the line that we had arbitrarily selected as a 50-foot wider crucial point. And so we're chopping our way through the sumac. We're chopping our way through the cattails and week after week after week until finally at about this time of the year, about the last tail end of July, and I had started the job the second day of June, the day after high school let out. I was, I was you, you, you can't comprehend what kind of a tan I had. Uh, I could have, believe me, I could have, uh, I could have been in the integration marches. Believe me, it was, it was fantastic. I, fantastic heat beating down, uh, the hot burn, and covered from head to foot 
with a bite of every conceivable kind. Yes, we had run into every kind of insect there was, and every one of them had trimmed. Everyone had made a, <laughs> had taken a sample, you know. If you turn from the top of our heads to our feet, we were covered with one long stream of welts. And I had lost maybe, uh, you know, I, I'm a kid, I probably, if I'm going to swing a good swing of 130 pounds, I must have lost 25, you know. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm a staring, staring Hulk wearing a pair, of, uh, a pair of khaki shorts. But for some reason or other, this job had a fur on me that no other job has ever had. Well, all four of us have been working on this thing day and night. We would quit. Just about the time that the twilight is coming, we would pile into this guy's car, piled up with all kinds of surveying equipment. The windows are broken. He uses he uses his job to drive on the job. You know, this car, this old crummy car, it's all battered. We would pile in the back absolutely dead tired. And at 7 o'clock in the morning, we're back out on the river, and the garfish are just laying out there. And you could see once in a while the bullheads rolling in the sun. You could hear the frogs yelling. You could hear the crows, millions of crows, as far as the eye could hear. You could hear crows, as far as your ear could pick it up. Crows calling. And you know, the crows got so they knew us. You know, crows are extremely intelligent birds. And the crow knows when you're after them. Any guy who's ever walked out in any, any, any area where, there, where there's a crow and he's carrying a gun, forget it. He knows all about crows. Crows know. A crow will walk within five feet of you. He understands you're not after him. But when he knows, somehow when you're after him, you can't get near a crow. Well, the crows knew we were friends. And so the crows are walking around. They're, they're sniping butts. They're grabbing sandwiches out of their hands. They're pitching over. They're around, helping us break the transit and the whole business. The crows were with us. Well, out in the river, once in a while, you see the old garbage wall. And it's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Me and the two other kids are way out ahead, and we're chopping with, well, what would be the American civil engineer version of a machete. I can't tell you what, what it is. They have long knives, long hook-like knives, which cut undergrowth, uh, very dangerous pieces of equipment, by the way, which cut undergrowth with, uh, with, with it gives you a real sense of power, so we're chopping and chopping. And, and, and the surveyor is miles back of us. And once in a while, we can see them back there. They hold up a flag and wave. Oh, the left! Oh, oh! Chop, chop, chop. We're going. Well, we're chopping the three of us, and we chop right through. We just chop right through, and suddenly they're laying right on the bank of the river is a field of tomatoes and cantaloupes. Indiana cantaloupes, Indiana tomatoes. The sun has been beating down on these babies since May. And now there they are, as ripe as anything you could comprehend. And believe me, the, the smell of a cantaloupe field in full flower, in full bloom, is overpowering. You just, you, you just breathe this in. I mean, it must be the next thing to sexual passion. I'm telling you, it's just insane. Your eyeballs bulge. Boy, I mean, it's fantastic. The temperature is now about 107 degrees, Ed. We have not had a drink of water since 11 o'clock that morning. It is now about 3.30. And that smelly, stinky, hot, rotten river is just blowing around the birds. Once in a while, you hear, and the crows are yelling. And, and that's so 
sun is beating down and the cattails are rattling and we are thirsty. We are hungry. We are 15 years old. We are, are, are like, like, like baked. We are baked to the point now we are like, like small, thin, sinewy rocks. That's the kind of people we are now at this point. And way back, about a mile and a half, is Mr. Millard and his very official assistant, the young guy from Purdue, who is the apprentice engineer, who next year is going to design the new San Francisco Bridge, you know, that kind of thing. He's way back there, and there's just three of us. We chop cantaloupes. We pause for a minute and smell. We look to the left, and there's nothing but that shimmering heat. You know how heat shimmers just laying there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the last few days of July? The heat is as alive, it's as moving, it's as vibrant, it's as vital as anything in life itself. And that heat just, just raising there. And as far as we could see, there laying on the ground, that hard, rough, ground-up, powdery, loamy soil, that sandy soil of Indiana, baked to a, a crisp row after row of cattle. Just the name. Well, I would, I would guess that the man was, was, uh, was working his way. As far as I know, he must have been working down at the other end of the field. It was a big cantaloupe field, like a, like a half mile long, you know. And he must have been harvesting down at the other end of the field. And this end of the field had ripened just a little too quick for him to make it. Because, uh, you know, I'm an old, I, I worked for one summer on a truck farm, and I'll tell you about that, so I know that problem. So here must have been 17,000, Ed, prime A number one, triple A graded Indiana cantaloupes ready for the spoon. They were not ready for the A&P, they were ready for the kids. Well, running along the river, right by the river, must have been his own private patch, there was the most magnificent patch of Indiana tomatoes that I have ever had the, the, uh, the privilege to lay my eyes on. Great big fat babies. Now, the big tomatoes, you know, the tomatoes that, that get to be like a, a pound each, they're pulpy. Forget them. They're nothing. But I'm talking about the tomatoes that are roughly the size of a medium good orange round, smooth, bulging, and dark, rich, ripe, summer red. Just laying there on the ground. Oh, boy, hanging. So we look over the tomatoes, we look over there at the cantaloupes, and, and Millard is about a mile and a half back, and he's hollering, oh, oh, we can hear this. And we're out there all by ourselves. So one of the guys, Fred, <laughs> Fred, he says, he says, look at these Look at these cantaloupe. And the, the, the tall, thin kid, which I will never remember his name because I never, I hated this guy all the way for a whole summer. I worked with this guy and hated him. All I know is that he had pimples. And I hated this guy and he went to Purdue. And, and this guy on the, on the other end, we, we're all standing there with our machete. He says, look at them tomatoes. And I look over at the tomatoes and I look at the cantaloupes. And Fred looks at the cantaloupes. And we listen back. We hear that Millard is about a mile and a half back, and they've gone back to the car to get the log table or something. So Fred says, I'm going to take one. And he reaches down and grabs a cantaloupe that was about the size of a bowling ball, let me tell you. And he takes his gigantic weed cutter, and he goes, thunk, 
can't, uh, it's just, just terrible. It's, it's a fantastic thing. There it is. He opens it up, and the guts spill out of this thing, and the juice pours out on his tennis shoes and over his mosquito bites. And it's a, it, it, it's a cantaloupe, the kind of cantaloupe, believe me, that, that it could be called the missionary's downfall. You know that kind of thing? Great big fat son of a gun, and he just holds it up to his mouth, up to his face, and takes the half of it and slaps it down. You can just see his eyes. Ah, and he's thirsty, you know, we're, we're thirsty. So I reach down and I grab one. <clears throat> I cut it off like that. I slap it over my mouth and I start chewing. Well, this big skinny kid goes over into the tomato patch and he cuts himself about a half pound beefsteak. You know, that kind, great big son of a gun. And he takes a chomp out of that thing. Well, we started to work. I must have done away with at least 17 two-pound cantaloupes in, a, in no more than 15 minutes. I am going through those cantaloupes. I'm working up one row. Freddie's working on the row next to me, and the other guy is on the other, and he's alternately hitting the tomatoes and the cantaloupes, and we're working just like that, working like that. And we just continued to go. I mean, have you ever have you ever had something that is like something that you only have rarely, and you have a surfeit of now? It must be the way King Farouk feels in the harem, you know, that kind of thing. It's just everywhere. So he's grabbing every cantaloupe. Well, we're beginning to slowly wind out, you know. You begin to taper off. Until finally you're getting to the point where you're just taking one bite, you know. It's, ah, oh, nothing. You throw it away. You pick up another one, chop. Oh, here's a good one. You take two bites and throw it away. Another one. Well, we're going out of our skull. <laughs> it's the culmination of a summer's work and a culmination of a whole lifetime of not enough cantaloupes. It's a lifetime of not enough to eat in any department. It's the depression. And we are going out of our skulls. The guts of cantaloupes are all over. There's tomato cores. Well, I'm, I'm about two-thirds of the way down the row, and, I, and I'm, I'm working my way through a magnificent, a beautiful cantaloupe. When behind me I hear, Ugh! Freddie has let go. <laughs> I turn around and say, What's the matter, Fred? Come on, man. Come on. Don't leave these things. Just sit here. What's the matter, Fred? Ah! <laughs> well, it's catching, you know. It's very catching. And I look at him and I see all this old used cantaloupe all around him, you know. And suddenly my cantaloupe gets very old and very used. Ah! It just comes up. And I look and back of me is Fred. And, and the tall, skinny kid is in the tomato patch laying flat. He's not doing anything. And out of the undergrowth comes Miller. Tall, thin, looking like Gregory Peck, and he says, What's going on here? Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> oh, and it was hot. And you could hear the mosquitoes, and you could see the garfish, and you could smell the catfish. Gene Shepard will explore other goings-on in the garden again tomorrow night at 11.15. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Enjoy your favorite operas on Saturdays at 2 p.m. throughout the summer on WOR Radio's Golden World of Opera. Tomorrow afternoon, the 15th broadcast of this season's Golden World of Opera will be Charpentier's Louise at 2 o'clock. Stay tuned now for the Long John Neville Show. This is WOR, AM, and FM, your RKO General Station in New York. At the signal, exactly 12 midnight.